Have you heard the term, uh, you can't legislate morality? Have you heard that phrase? Well, in what, under what context is that usually brought up? What context do you usually hear that phrase? Huh? Issues of sexuality, I heard somebody say. Yeah, that's true. Uh, you know, keep the law out of the bedroom or something, right? What else? You guys know? You don't hear that phrase? Oh, you, do, you just can't think of uh, examples of what it pertains to? Politics, you say? Yeah, I've heard the, all kinds of different things. I mean, uh, parent, yeah, Austin says parenting. Right? Well, to what extent can the can the government make laws about how you parent, or about um, well, even even with regard to vaccines? And when the COVID thing comes out, you know, can you legislate that more? Can you can you make laws? How about this one? Can you make laws uh, to make me like you more, to make us be nicer to each other? Can you make laws to make us be nice? So in that sense, you can't really legislate morality. But when people say the phrase, you can't legislate morality. Um, oftentimes they mean like don't put your views on abortions another one don't that's your view but don't force it on somebody else they might say that's legislating morality right you can't legislate morality anybody yeah heard that one the trouble with the phrase don't you can't legislate morality I'll give you the trouble I'll give you three troubles with that phrase um, according to the Bible anyways um, first of all Nobody sins in a vacuum. Nobody sins in a vacuum. We talked about this a few weeks ago, that when you sin, we're all connected. All of us are connected. Nobody, we're not just a collection of isolated individuals. We're all connected. So when you sin, it's like dropping a pebble into a pond and the ripples go out. They affect people far uh, beyond you. We talk about sexuality, talk about pornography. That's not a personal, private sin to use pornography because then it depends on well it funnels money towards the institutions and the websites that support that stuff even just by clicking on on them even if you're not a subscriber it depends upon the exploitation of women and girls it depends upon dehumanization it depends upon men having a false understanding of who they are what they're for what sexuality is for and it damages the, the fabric of society Nobody sins in a vacuum. Even something uh, less intense than pornography, just grumpiness. Just think grumpiness is a sin, being scrumpy all the time. Your grumpiness wears off on me. I just can't help it. Anybody relate? You got somebody grumpy in the house. They don't keep it to themselves, do they? It wears off. Number two, one of the purposes of the law is to restrain evil. And so that's why it, it, it doesn't make any sense to say that you can't legislate morality. One of the purposes of the law is to restrain evil. Martin Luther King Jr. understood this. He says, of course you can't make somebody love me. He says, quote, it may be true that the law cannot make a man love me, but it can stop him from lynching me. And I think that's pretty important. So 
although you can't legislate morality, you can't make somebody, you can't change somebody's heart through the law. Nevertheless, you can affect their behavior, which I don't know, perhaps over time changes the hearts of society, but more importantly, it restrains evil, and that's one of the reasons God gives a law. Number three, all laws legislate morality, even laws about taxes, even laws about littering, even laws about jaywalking. Loitering, I'm not so sure, but uh, littering, yes. Loitering, mm. comedian Brian Regan has a little skit where he says, he says, uh, how can loitering be a crime? Loitering, you know, kids, you know what loitering is? It's just standing around, nothing to do, right? So how can, how can it be a crime if the remedy to the crime is as simple as move along now? Uh, he says as it's funny, but I'm, I'm not very funny. We're going to come to some laws today, talking about legislating morality, laws, right? We're going to talk, come to some laws today and over the next couple of weeks. And at first glance, you're going to think, what the heck does this have to do with salvation or our walk with God? What does this have to do with us? Because these laws, they're old laws. They're ancient laws. But I want you to think about Scripture first. I want you to think about what Scripture is. Scripture is, it, it has two natures to it, the divine nature and the human nature. In a way, it's kind of like Jesus. The fancy theological word for that is hypostasis, or the hypostatic union, we call it, uh, between, and the reason we have these fancy words is because it takes so many normal words to say it, which I'm going to demonstrate to you now. Uh, the, uh, Jesus Christ is fully God, 100%. He is completely God. And yet he is completely man, 100%. He's fully man. And so therefore, we don't diminish one nature or the other. It's two natures in one person. Much easier to say, hypostatic union. Scripture is very similar. Scripture is all that is written with the hands of people. None of our scriptures came down on golden papyri leaves, already all written out with verse numbers and chapters and all that, just Ten Commandments possible exception. But uh, it's completely all man-made, written by man. But what's First Timothy 3.16 say? Second Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is God-breathed. It's breathed out by God the Holy Spirit, so it's also fully written by God. Hebrews, Hebrews, the beginning of the very book of Hebrews, long ago, the writer says, God spoke many times, God spoke many times, and in many ways to our ancestors, how did he speak? Through the prophets. So scripture is both. So the reason I belabor this point is because scripture is written by God, even if the laws that we're about to read don't make sense or don't apply to us, nevertheless, we know that they're given by the lawgiver, and so we can see a bit of his heart. We understand why did, why would God give these people a law like this, and we understand more of God's heart. And so that's the purpose today. The more we know of God's heart, the more we know of God, the more we love him, the more we can adore him, like the song said. Let's go to prayer. Father, we do wish to adore you more and more. We need to, we need to know you in order to do that. I cannot adore somebody until and unless I know them. God, welcome us into your presence and into a relationship with you. Not a knowledge of you, certainly not a superstition about you, or some kind of manipulative, wishful thinking, if I do the right thing. God, we don't want to, anything to do with that, but we want to know you. We want an intimacy with you. Please reveal yourself to us, to our hearts today. In Christ's name, amen.
So we're back in Exodus. We're taking our sweet time to go through the entire book of Exodus, a very long book. We're back at it now. We've been away from it for about a month. We're back at it in chapter 22. I'm going to start in chapter 22, verse 1. I'm reading out of the NIV. If you have a digital Bible in your hands and you want to read the same version I'm reading, you can read the NIV. If not, it won't be too terribly different. But I'm going to start in chapter 22, verse 1. Again, this is God giving Moses some laws by which the people of Israel are to live. God says, Moses writes, Whoever steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it must pay back five head of cattle for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. If a thief is caught breaking in at night and is struck a fatal blow, the defender is not guilty of bloodshed. But if it happens after sunrise, the defender is guilty of bloodshed. Anyone who steals must certainly make restitution. But if they have nothing, they must be sold to pay for their theft. If the stolen animal is found alive in their possession, whether ox or donkey or sheep, they must pay back double. If anyone grazes their livestock in a field or vineyard and lets them stray and they graze in someone else's field, the offender must make restitution from the best of their own field or vineyard. If a fire breaks out and spreads into thorn bushes so that it burns shocks of grain or standing grain or the whole field, the one who started the fire must make restitution. If anyone gives a neighbor silver or goods for safekeeping and they are stolen from the neighbor's house, the thief, if caught, must pay back double. But if the thief is not found, the owner of the house must appear before the judges and they must determine whether the owner of the house has laid hands on the other person's property. In all cases of illegal possession of an ox, a donkey, a sheep, a garment, or any other lost property about which somebody says, this is mine, both parties are to bring their cases before the judges. The one whom the judge declares, who the judges declare guilty must pay back double to the other. If anyone gives a donkey, an ox, a sheep, or any other animal to their neighbor for safekeeping and it dies or is injured or is taken away while no one is looking, the issue between them will be settled by the taking of an oath before the Lord that the neighbor did not lay hands on the other person's property. The owner is to accept this and no restitution is required. But if the animal was stolen from the neighbor, restitution must be made to the owner. If it was torn to pieces by a wild animal, the neighbor shall bring in the remains as evidence and shall not be required to pay for the torn animal. If anyone borrows an animal, from their neighbor, and it is injured or dies while the owner is not present, they must make restitution. But if the owner is with the animal, the borrower will not have to pay. If the animal was hired, the money paid for the hire covers the loss. So a lot of laws in there actually run parallel to the way we run society today, don't they? A few things, though, that we need. I told you, I don't need... What does this have to do with us? I don't, I don't know what I would even do with an ox if I had one. And if you took it away from me, I would probably thank you. I wouldn't want five cows in exchange for it. But nevertheless, like I told you, Moses was a, he was a specific individual written and, and he was writing at a specific point in time. So these laws were really important to these people at this time. And these laws show us the heart of, of God. 
the first point I want to take from these, this list of laws is, that, is this. It's that vigilante justice is unbiblical. I couldn't think of a single instance in which vigilante justice is uh, encouraged or justified in Scripture. Government is created by God to restrain evil. Government, not you or your posse. Revenge is forbidden in multiple places. See Romans 12, 19. See Matthew 5, 39. A lot of people actually don't know this. You might be surprised. A lot of people don't know this. Last time we were in Exodus, about a month or so ago, we read that verse, uh, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. A lot of people think that's about revenge, vengeance. It's not about vengeance. That, that verse, those instructions are about, they're about saying that the punishment must fit the crime. And that will fold neatly into point number two in just a minute. All the commands we're reading here, you have to remember, so, 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 so vigilante justice, unbiblical. All the commands that we're reading now, they're being given to Moses. Moses, uh, the first, this is, we're talking about the first Supreme Court in the history of mankind. And Moses is the first Supreme Court justice in the history of mankind. Well, certainly the first one whose name is recorded. You ever think about him that way? Moses is a lot of things. He's also the first Supreme Court justice that uh, was ever created. God is saying, you, Moses, and the judges, the judges are mentioned multiple times in this passage, you guys are the ones who are going to enforce this. This is the way that you guys are to institute justice throughout the land. So at no point in here does this say that, that if someone torques you off or even if somebody kills your cattle or something, that you can take the law into your own hands and go seek out vengeance. Government is given by God to restrain evil. Now, that's vigilante justice. But what about what about self-defense? This actually, this passage says something about self-defense too in verses two and three. Did you catch those interesting verses? I'll read them again. If a thief is caught breaking in at night and has struck a fatal blow, the defender is not guilty of bloodshed. But if it happens after sunrise, the defender is guilty of bloodshed. How many of you own firearms? I know that. It's okay. You don't have to keep it a secret. I won't look at you differently. I have one too, actually, a couple actually. But here's what we need to make sure that we are doing. If you own a gun, and especially if you carry a gun, this passage should remind you to be continually, continually, and careful and prayerful about the decision you've made. Now, of course, guns, they didn't exist when Moses is writing this. So he couldn't imagine, Moses couldn't imagine an instance where somebody could break into your house and shoot you from 20 feet away, or vice versa. He couldn't have imagined that issue. He's, he's thinking if someone's breaking into your house at night, you can't see. There wasn't electricity back then either. You couldn't just flip on a light. Certainly no sirens or alarm bells are going to go off. And so in a case like this, God seems to expect that in the course of protecting your, your, your property, and especially your loved ones, the, the, the person breaking in, even if it's just a drunk stumbling in, doesn't mean you any harm, but they might get injured. Probably, probably if they're going to die, it's probably going to come by them falling out of a window as lots of, lots of houses are built into the city walls at this time. In the course of wrestling or something, it falls out the window. But if it's daylight, now things change. Now you can see the guy. Now you can tell, is he just a thief or a drunk or uh, somebody with a mental problem or does he mean me harm? Because you have light, 
a whole list of options are now open to you besides killing the guy. So we could get into a whole host of complexities here, but I don't think that's necessary. I think the principle is actually very clear. The principle goes something like this. If there's a way, if there's a way not to kill the guy, you must not kill him. And that's in the day and age of where, where, where guns exist. Does that complicate that principle? Of course it does. Of course it does. And that's why I encourage you. If you or anybody you know carries a firearm to be continually prayerful, especially if anybody you know it carries one and they haven't put a lot of thought into it. Or they're feel maybe just bravado and I'm just going to exercise my rights. Sometimes I see people downtown and open carrying and young guys too. And I don't, I don't know, but I wonder. I wonder, have you thought this through? See, you've got to decide, or people you know, maybe you're, come on, Adam, move on. Well, maybe you know somebody who's like this. You have to decide now at what point you will take that out and be ready to use it. And don't depend on the heat of the moment, snap decisions. That's when terrible things happen. You see, even in Yahweh's, this is, this is Yahweh is extremely merciful. And in Yahweh's law court, even a potentially violent lawbreaker has rights. And taking a life is the ultimate violence you can do to another person. You're taking the destruction of an image bearer of God into your own hands. It's serious. So I would just encourage you. Most of you all, I'm sure, already know this. But if you know people, encourage them to get training think and pray through these things. Number two, I, I, the, the second point that I see in this list of laws is that God hates favoritism. God hates favoritism. There's a word in our text that appears over and over again, and you're going to think I'm crazy when I first say it. The word is anyone. If you're using an ESV, it's, it's, a, it's a man. If a man does such and such, if a man does such and such. In the NIV, if, it's any, if anyone does this, if anyone, well, what kind of sermon can I preach from the word anyone? We're going to find out. The word anyone it comes from a Hebrew word, ish. Everybody say ish. The Hebrew word means man, or it could mean person, or it could mean husband. My Hebrew professor, you, you'll never forget this, by the way. You're going to remember it forever. My Hebrew professor in seminary was a female, and she said she was sure that when uh, God went to the people and said, okay, what should we call this? What name should we come up with with this? He asked the women, what name should we come up with for your husband? And the women said, eesh. And so it stuck. The, the name for woman is Isha. And my Hebrew professor was just convinced that that was a term, that was a, a phrase of adoration, like you're sighing in beauty, it just uh, overcome by Isha. So I don't know, she might have been biased, but there you've learned two Hebrew words for the day. But the reason the word Ish is important for us today is because it demonstrates that God is impartial. Ish is the most generic term Hebrew has for a person. It could mean an individual. It was common in ancient times in, for the law codes to prescribe different penalties for different people. So if a commoner commits a crime against the nobleman, then the, then the, the, the penalty is such and such and such. You know? But if a, if a nobleman commits a crime against the slave, well, come on, is it even a crime? I mean, we're just going to look the other way. It's only a slave after all, right? 
And so actually Yahweh's principles here are very, very egalitarian. They're very, very just and in an equal treatment for all uh, uh, under, uh, uh, under the law. So that's why I like the NIV's choice to translate it as anyone. If anyone steals, here's the proper response from the government. If anyone causes somebody's cattle to die or, or whatever, here's the proper response. It doesn't matter what your status is or whether you're wealthy or poor. And the third thing that I want to point out from these, this list of laws is actually the thing that I hope we all take away from us today, not the Isha and the Isha, but this is actually the most important thing that we take away from the laws, and that's that when you sin against somebody, you, you do spiritual damage. You do spiritual damage. So I'll tell you a quick story. Um, when I was living in Italy, one time uh, I lived in Naples. Naples is in southern Italy. It's known for its crime. I lived there for about five years, and I knew better, but one day I parked my car uh, by the railroad tracks, kind of an obscure train station, to take the train with some friends down into Naples, and we got back after dark. Uh, uh, and I went back to my car, and all the other cars around me, uh, my car had left. And sure enough, I got to my car, and the lock had been busted, and they had gotten into my car. They, they were gracious enough, I suppose, not to break the windows. But uh, they took the radio, the, da the stereo, out of the dash, although the little faceplate was detachable. It wasn't on there. It was in my glove box, but they didn't take that. That, that ticked me off even more. Not only did they steal my stereo, but they stole my stereo, and they can't even use it. Um, but then they also took the Bible off the back seat of my car. It had a really nice leather grain cover on it. It must have looked really fancy to them. So they took the stereo, and they took the Bible. And I was just really upset. But there was something more than that. And some of you know this feeling I'm talking about. It was a, a sense of violation. There was a sense of violation that occurred to us. So that even if, if I, theoretically, let's say I had been driving down the road and the thief was carrying my stuff and he recognized my car and he flags me down and he says, Adams, Adams. They always call me Adams because of the Adams family. Adams, Adams. Uh, he would say, I feel so guilty. I've, I've been overcome with this sense of, uh, uh, of grief and shame and I want to make it right. I'm going to give this back to you. Even if he would have done that, the wound or the damage done in our relationship still wouldn't be completely healed. Because he had done some sort of spiritual damage, one man to another, by doing that to me. Even though we were strangers. He damaged the, relation, the relational fabric between the two of us. It's something you all know that in your heart. You, can know, you know what I'm talking about. Even if your head, you can't make sense. But I can't qualify that. I can't tell you how much I put a dollar amount on that damage that he's done or tell you what he could possibly do to, 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 to repair that damage. But the damage is there. Of course, the closer you are to a person, the more severe that damage can be. So this is, this is getting to the point. This, where do I get that from the text? I get that from the text because when you can't, it, it, you don't just give somebody an ox back for an ox if you steal, or a sheep back for a sheep. Did you notice it's like five cows for an ox and four sheep for one sheep? And then a bunch of other stuff, you have to pay back double. Why is that? Why is that? It's because of this relation. It's, 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 it's signifying this relational damage that has been done by the sin you committed against this other person. It's more than just taking their stuff. This leads us to the gospel of Jesus Christ because a lot of people will ask. A lot of people are not sure. I like the story of Jesus. I like you Christians, and it seems like a great way to live, and this, that, and the other thing. But why the blood? Why the cross? Why did Jesus, why did Jesus have to die? 
Couldn't God just forgive us just by saying, okay, guys, I forgive you, and look the other way and move on with his life? Couldn't God just do that? But see, you know, you know that if you've ever been really seriously wronged by somebody, you know that forgiveness is costly to you, don't you? It costs you to forgive them. And again, you can't put a dollar amount on that on that wound. You can't just tell them what they have to do. They can't just do push-ups for a half an hour and fix the wound, right? There's nothing they can do, in fact. There is nothing they can do to repair the wound. Sometimes time takes care of it, but depending on what the sin is, sometimes it'll never heal. And so to forgive the person, what's going to have to happen? In forgiving me, if I seriously wrong you, in forgiving me, that means you're choosing not to hold the relational damage. Listen to me. You with me? If you forgive me, you're choosing not to hold the relational damage I've caused against me. That includes not seeking revenge, but it includes much more than that. Now, that relational damage and the pain, it does not just disappear just because you decide not to hold it against me. It does not just evaporate. Where does it go? You. You have to absorb it. You have to suck it up. That's what forgiveness is. So why did God have to die to forgive you and me? Because the damage that we have done to our relationship with him is serious. And forgiveness is costly. Lauren read, if God, that God demonstrates his love for us in this. See, you remember, God doesn't forgive you begrudgingly. He longs to forgive you because you're, you're a big deal to him. He loves you a whole lot. And he's got great plans for you. He thinks you are awesome. And so, of course, he wants to forgive you. Of course, he wants to fix that damaged relationship that you've done. Even though it's going to cost him a boatload. What Lauren read was that God demonstrates his love for you in this. And while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. He died for you while you were still a sinner. Paul, the author of that text that Lauren read, continues to say, you were God's enemy. That's an even stronger term than sinner, isn't it? You were God's enemy. Don't you see? So that's why it costs God a boatload to forgive you. He has to absorb the offense of the rebellion. He has to absorb it into himself. And that's exactly what God does. That's exactly what God wants to do for you. Because why? Because he loves you. Because you are packed with potential. Because he sees himself in you. That's why you're worth it to him. I'll close with this line from this hymn. The hymn, It Is Well, one of the lines reads like this. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord 
it is well with my soul.